Hello and welcome to the D&D Roundtable on the Tome Show Podcast Network. I'm your host, James Intracasso. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the show. If you've been here before, do me a favor, go give us a great rating on iTunes. It helps us a bunch. Seriously, if you've been paying nothing for the Tome, go give us a great rating. It only takes 30 seconds of your time. Come on, people. In fact, I read one new five-star review verbatim every episode and credit the person who left it. Make me say anything you want, but keep it clean, people. This is a family D&D news podcast. Today's review comes from MWZ444, and it is entitled, Dare I Say, Too Much Great Content. The five-star review says, The Tome Show Network has an amazing set of D&D-related shows. There are so many hours of useful information that I have to listen to them at 1.5 speed, and now their real voices sound weird to me. Between the epitomous Tome Show and Roundtable, I can keep up with what the whole industry is doing, not just Wizards of the Coast. The hosts use both enthusiasm and a critical eye when discussing events and products. I feel like I can trust their opinion. The flagship news podcasts are nicely complemented by an assortment of other interesting shows that are entertaining but too numerous to list. I am specifically hoping that the book club starts up again. Don't worry, it will. I would heartily recommend The Tome Show to anyone who is into D&D. Well, MWZ444. Can I call you MDub? I feel like I can. We're, we're close now. MDub, thank you so much for this review. People, hop on to iTunes. Leave us a great review. I'm running out of words that have been put into my mouth by other people. Please use the affiliate links at thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. I would also like to thank our sponsor for this podcast, OpenGamingStore.com. My product pick from OpenGamingStore.com for this episode is the Raging Swan Press Mega bundle. It's got all kinds of Pathfinder products. It is 30 bucks for over 200 PDFs. It's more than a thousand dollars retail that you can get for just 30 bucks right now at opengamingstore.com. They've offered an exclusive coupon code to Tome Show listeners. Enter the code TOME2016 and you will get 10% off your Order. And now, with me to tell us all about OpenGamingStore.com is Fred the Pixie. Oh, hey, it's me, Fred the Pixie. Yeah, I wanted to tell you all about OpenGamingStore.com. It's a great website where you can buy all kinds of gaming PDFs and other great products, onesies for the kids. They always got these great package deals that you should check that change in every single week. So check it out, OpenGamingStore.com. It is a Pixie's best friend. Okay, everybody, today we are talking about some new encounter building guidelines from Unearthed Arcana, and then we're going to chat about a new line of unpainted miniatures from WizKids. But first, let's meet our panel and kick things off with our get-to-know-you question, what is your favorite kind of metallic dragon? Mike Shea, welcome back to the roundtable. How are you, buddy? 
I hate metallic dragons. I know you do. That's why I picked this question. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry. What was your question? Oh, I, I couldn't get past the rage. What metallic dragon is your favorite? Uh, I have to go with bronze. Do they have bronze and brass? I don't even know. They do. They have both. Oh, what a pain in the ass. So <laughs> I'm going to go with bronze because I have fond memories of fighting a bronze dragon in Pool of Radiance like 30 years ago. My own, my, my second choice would be like a cursed gold dragon, <laughs> right? Or a, 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 a gold dragon that's been taken over by a demon would be a good, would be a, if that counts as a metallic dragon. It, sure. I mean, I think uh, I think many people out there probably have played in Eberron where dragons and all creatures aren't really beholden to a single alignment and metallic dragons are just as likely to be evil as chromatic right. dragons uh, right. and good vice versa about good. So, you know, um, so maybe you should set your games in Eberron to get the most out of metallic dragons. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, and Scott Dyer is back at the round table. Scott, what is your favorite kind of metallic dragon? Oh, I have to say they are the copper. I think those are the the wise ass ones. Yes, yeah, yes. right. They'll they bury like you to in joke sand around, and talk to you just to Yep. Yeah. Prank you. Um and then they become like little uh 3-year-olds about their treasure. <laughs> <laughs> they have their temper tantrums. Yeah, I think they're fun. Yeah. Yeah. So copper. there's there's copper, bronze and brass. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> there are just as many metallic as there are chromatic. <laughs> I was going to say, didn't someone come up with an Electrum Dragon at one point, maybe in a Dragon article? I don't remember. I believe that is correct. Yeah. I believe you are correct. There's an Electrum Dragon. There's an Adamantine. You got Iron. Yeah. There's all kinds of goodness. So. The neat thing about the Electrum is it, it, it's, it's one-fifth as powerful as a Gold Dragon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, How about a rust dragon? Is there one of those? <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. Rusting yeah. breath would be like a terrifying rust monster. Uh, <laughs> Dan Elwell is back with us. Dan, why don't you tell the people out there what your favorite metallic dragon is? Well, well, you know, gosh, back when I was like 10 or 11, I would have said the gold dragon because it was the biggest, meanest. And I wanted to play one as a character, you know, that that, that was, I think, every 10-year-old's dream, right? <laughs> Because um, they could shapeshift and all that, but but more recently, I think you know I have also have an affection for copper dragons. Uh, you know, I had a adventuring party that I was in uh, uh, 20, 25 years ago that was the Fellowship of the Copper Dragon. We'd actually rescued a, uh, a a very young copper dragon, which ended up following us around like a puppy dog, uh, and the the DM played him like that uh, <laughs> a puppy dog that could spit acid breath and rip you apart, but. Um, but he was also something of a uh, of a deus ex machina. And whenever we got into trouble that we couldn't handle, you know, the copper dragon would show up and say, uh, "Need any help?" <laughs> so I, I like those guys. Nice, nice. I like that a lot. So uh, you know, we're talking about dragons because uh, dragons are a great monster, and monsters are. You ready for this segue? Part of encounter building. Uh, so uh, I just thought it would be fun to ask Mike really about what kind of metallic dragon. You, <laughs> you like. did the whole thing about metallic dragons. I hate him. <laughs> uh, eighteen pages. They take up eighteen pages in the monster manual for crying out loud. <laughs> for guys you don't. <laughs> I've used tons of metallic dragons in my game. <laughs> need to do a whole campaign just on those jerks. 
so why don't we talk about uh, these encounter building guidelines? So again, an Unearthed Arcana article has come out uh, this month. It's all about encounter building. Reminder to the listeners out there, Unearthed Arcana rules are free and they're considered in playtest mode, so they're not final. Um, and one of the reasons we have these is this is one of the most requested items I have seen whenever it goes out like, hey, what would make your lives easier as a, you know, as a DM? Uh, right now, the encounter building guidelines that are in the Dungeon Master's Guide and basic rules are kind of wonky. They're, they're very difficult to use. Sometimes you have to use backwards math. Um, I will recommend Cobalt Fight Club as a website that will make your life easier. And I will also recommend uh, Mike Shea's Sly Flourish encounter building guidelines that will make your life a lot easier if you use those. Um, so those are sort of the, the two places I would go uh, if I was going to build encounters right now because the encounter rules just take so much time. Uh, so we have these new rules uh, here in the encounter building guidelines. Uh, and then they, you know, have some ways that you can make monsters different uh, as well. But the encounter building guidelines are good two and a half pages, lots of tables, lots of charts. So we're going to dive right in and, and sort of talk about it. I think people should go and check out these encounter building guidelines because basically they are charts that say, if you have this number of characters at this level, you know, this is the number of monsters of a certain challenge rating you could use. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the third edition and 3.5 Pathfinder encounter building guidelines. My personal favorite were the fourth. I thought those were really easy to use. Uh, you know, it was like one monster per creature. Some monsters count as two. Some monsters count as five. Or not per creature, per player. Uh, but you get what I mean. Uh, so uh, why don't we start with Mike Shea. Mike, I feel like you've got something to say about this. <laughs> yeah, I have something to say. Yeah, so I've, in my, my deep thoughts about 5th edition... Um, there are really uh, two things that stand out to me as, as areas that I really wish they had expanded on or, or improved over the game. Uh, one of them being uh, the encounter building guidelines. The other one being better, better guides for how to run narrative theater, the mind abstract combat, and then encounter building. And uh, the reason why is I think anybody that's tried to read through or has read through the rules of the Dungeon Master's Guide on how you're supposed to build an encounter and has ever tried it can understand how complicated that system is. Um, and, and really, my, my critique of it is, is twofold. One, it's really, really complicated. And two, it still doesn't give you a good result even when you do it. And I think both of those together kind of hurt. From what I understand, the reason why we have the encounter building guidelines in the DMG that we have is because that's how Wizards of the Coast builds encounters. Like, that's the math that they go through in order to determine an encounter. And if you're being paid particularly, you know, if you're being paid to build adventures, I can understand why you'd want as good a system as you can have. Um, but when we just want to sit and put together, you know, a, a, an encounter, those those rules are, are really complicated. If, and, and, and again, just to kind of quickly describe it, you essentially have to build an experience budget for each of the characters that you have, uh, pool that together, and then go select some monsters that fit within that budget but then use a multiplier depending <laughs> on the number of monsters to determine whether or not they uh, account for more. And the exactly. problem is... Yeah, and this is, we should say, this is the one in the Dungeon Master's This guide. is the original yeah. Dungeon Master's Guide one, yeah. Uh, which is why they've put out an encounter-building one and why I worked on one and why Cobalt Fight Club is out and why there are a number of other systems. 
And it's because you're constantly tweaking two dials. Like it's like you'll throw some monsters in and then you realize, oh, wait, the, you know, I have too many. So then I'm going to increase the multiplier. But then that means you have way fewer. But as soon as you have fewer, the multiplier goes back up again. So you're constantly like getting, you know, fiddling these two dials in order to get them both aligned exactly right before you can figure out what kind of monster you want. And as you said, compared to like fourth edition, where, you know, everything, well, you know, monsters had levels, right? And that level was the equivalent of a level of a character. Um, it's, it was, it was overly, it was pretty, pretty burdensome. Totally. So what do you think of this, uh, this new system that we have here? Uh, I think it is greatly improved. Um, you know, this one, like it, it's, I mean, a, it's, it's really like, it's got five, five tables on it, I think, but really it's one table, right? And you, you, your only decision-making process when looking at it is, okay, a, am I doing one monster or multiple monsters? And that determines whether you're using the solo chart or the multiple monster chart. Then what level are your characters and, uh, you know, and then how many monsters per character or how many characters per monster uh, equates to the particular challenge rating. So you, you kind of just have to say, okay, character level is this, you know, and then I'm going to go across the top and figure out, you know, what, what challenge rating the monster, the monster has. And then it tells you exactly how many it is. So if you've got ninth level characters and you've got, you know, uh, a challenge two monster, that means that you can have uh, two monsters for every character. That works out pretty well. And the nice thing is this still fits the math that the DMG has. If you if you use this chart and then went back and did it the old way, you're going to come out with basically the same result. It's going to be, I, you know, I think with this one, it's pretty accurate. Um, so it should be basically the same result that you would get otherwise. Nice, nice. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is a much improved uh, system, as you have mentioned for sure. Uh, what about you? What do you think, Scott? Yes, I actually went through this system and I looked at a few encounters that I just ran for Princes of the Apocalypse, and I would say it's spot on um, for what it says the challenge ratings would have been and how they were actually built. So for me, not having as much time to spend, you know, if I want to craft an encounter, something like this is a heck of a lot easier than trying to do XP counting and multipliers, etc. that the DMG had. I never used it. Honestly, when I built encounters... Yeah. I would I just look at hit, yeah. hit points and how much damage output a creature would have. And I would pick creatures based on what, you know, if they could match my party. Sure. And I forget about XP. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the, the XP budget definitely makes it a little uh, uh, difficult. And I know it's funny because fourth edition as written, it was like, oh, you have an XP budget. But everybody figured out very quickly the XP budget worked out in a particular way yeah. uh, when you were choosing things. Um, you know, and I think because this is close to third edition and a ton of people played third, it was a great game. Um, this is, uh, you know, this, this is very easy to track, too. It's a lot easier than the sort of calculus mike described uh what about you daniel what do you think of this new system you know i have to i have to agree with uh, what scott and mike said i think that the the new system it's definitely less uh you know computation less math and and, and easier to do i mean to be honest i haven't you know i never used the one in the dmg um i kind of have my own philosophy on encounter design um you know the thing is mike my players that I work uh, DM for most, most often tend to be really clever. So uh, if I use the straight math from the DMG or even from this new uh, new system, it would, the encounters would probably be underpowered. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we run, my characters are, my players, sorry, are really pretty clever. 
Um, so, so I tend to have uh, encounters that are more story driven, and you know, it may be that they're fighting um, monsters that are well below their level if it's appropriate for the story. But then there's times I throw stuff at them that I know they can't win um, because, and sometimes the the best strategy is to run away, um, and. <laughs> I don't always make that obvious. Sometimes you get into it uh, in the encountering way, say, whoa, let's get out of here. Uh, because you know that you're, you're, you're taking damage faster than you can dish it out. So, so you know, that being said, though, I, th I think this new system definitely is an improvement in terms of usability and certainly time and preparation time if you want to go that route. Uh, were there any ways that people were looking over this and they thought that maybe it could be further improved? Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I have lots to say. Sorry. Yeah. So the I think the biggest one is that it's still a really detailed system for a for a whole a whole section of the game that just the detail isn't going to help. Right. That like you're still going to be able to build either wildly underpowered or wildly overpowered encounters, depending on which monsters you pick, even within a CR range. And the examples I'll bring up is like an ogre. You know, or there's like a Banshee, right? Like Banshees are CR4, but they can still take out a group of level 16s because they scream and, and people fall. The challenge ratings applied to monsters is already a really loose system. So trying right. to come up with a more detailed encounter building rule isn't necessarily going to build you a more balanced encounter. It's just going to take a long time. And this is better because it simplified it, but it, you know, it, it's, it's still giving too big an impression uh, that it's going to be able to build a balanced encounter when really, you know, you're going to have to you're going to have to gauge it. You're going to have to look at the monster and gauge it. And I think it even says that like it's got a lot of stuff in here saying like take note of saving throws and take notes of damage output and all that stuff. But then it gives this gigantic chart with all of the ratios in it and, and people are going to have an expectation of what that's going to mean. Um, but I think one of the big things that uh, one of the big areas that I think it missed on and I, I think that's that came up here is. You know, I, it's got these steps, like step one, two, three, four, and five. And I don't think that um, those are the steps that we actually take when we're building an encounter. Um, you know, it starts off with like step one is assess the characters, step two, encounter size, blah, blah, blah. But everybody I know, and, and when I queried out on Twitter saying, how do we build, you know, I, I kind of had to think about it. I'm like, I don't even know how we build encounters. Like, I don't know how I build them, really. Like, what do I start with? And almost everybody came up with the same thing, which was you start with the story. And so what what monsters make sense given the given the context? You know, if we're running Curse of Strahd, then uh, you know va vampires are an obvious one, but zombies and 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 vampire spawn and skeletons and ghouls and other kinds of undead things. And you might say, okay, if they're at a haunted church, we're going to need that you know this kind of stuff. So you're going to have the list of the types of monsters you're going to fight before you do anything else. And so that to me is step one when the selecting the monsters is, I think, step four out of five in this one. And they expect that step one, two, and three is figuring out your characters, figuring out the encounter size, and then determining challenge ratings, and then you pick the monster. And I think that that doesn't work. I think it's the other direction. The more I thought, like I said, I thought about this an awful lot. I wrote a big, long article on Slyflourish. I edited it like 10 times. I keep putting it up. And, and, and what I've narrowed it down to is like, I really think the whole thing is two steps. And step one is, you know, pick the monsters based on the story. And mm -hmm. step two is figure out how many of them you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And that, and, and it's only the second part that requires any math at all. Yeah, and, absolutely. 
you know, and and once once you've got that, and then and and what you know, I've kind of done is looking at all these charts and looking at the original math and looking at it is I've come up with a number that sits in my head, and with that one number, I can pretty much determine exactly how many monsters of any given challenge rating I'm going to need against any any number of of groups, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's my special secret. <laughs> uh, but it is one of those things I think you are you are a hundred percent right about Mike because. Um, Fifth edition has been pushing this story first idea, right? And and I think Daniel even put it well when he said, you know, he he picks monsters. He knows his group is tougher. He picks monsters based on what the situation calls for, right? What the story calls for. And if it's too big and it starts to pummel them, well, then they figure out maybe they got to run away, right? Um, and obviously, uh, you know, we're not always trying to. We don't want every encounter to end that way, right? But it is exciting if there is that element of risk, I think, you know, where it's like, oh, is this too big for us to handle? That does happen occasionally, you know, um, but we're also pretty awesome and maybe we can best this monster that's supposed to be too tough for us. I think certain players uh, take as a challenge. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Uh, starting with the yeah. with the monsters first and then getting some guidelines from yeah. there is a great way to go. And the other thing that's hard is like, what if you want a, a, a mix? That was always what I was yeah. thinking when I read these. What if you want a mix of monsters? What if you want to have a boss monster and some minions or, or that mm-hmm. kind of thing? Mm-hmm. These charts aren't as helpful for that, you know? In the some of the initial adventures out of Wizards for fourth edition, they they did that a lot where you'd had have some low-level uh, minions or other monsters and then some tougher ones. Uh, and that was a pretty common thread. Uh, I think that's... That holds true in a lot of the published 5th edition modules as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to, I mean, some of the monsters that you're throwing at your at your players are going to be largely window dressing. It's there for, for flavor, right? Because they're going to wade through them like not that nobody's business. But, uh, but then, yeah, there's going to be some tougher ones, which are going to really give them a run for the money and should. I mean, any combat that the characters go into should have an element of maybe we won't come back from this one or... Yeah, you know, what have you? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Uh, yeah. So, Dan, what do you think? Uh, 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 do you think there are some ways that maybe the encounter building guidelines we have could be improved? Well, at the risk of being me too, I think you know Mike has it right on the head. I mean, I think you you figure out what kind of monsters that you want to th- you want to throw into the mix, and then you figure out how many of them. I mean, that's really good advice. Uh, I mean, there's different ways to do that, right? And and. Uh, I, I usually think about theming, um, you know, as in, uh, you know, what's appropriate for the theme of the particular adventure. It's going to be different because um, every, you know, terrain or every, you know, situation is going to have a different mix. And so that right off the bat is going to rule out some things or rule in other things. Um, and I don't know that that element of it was quite as, as, you know, came through quite as much uh, as I might have liked. Yeah, I totally hear you. Uh, Scott, what about you? Any any ways you think this could be improved? Well, you know, I think they did a good job looking at, like, the personality tables, the relationship mm-hmm. tables. I mean, I think too many people want to take a combat to the very end with death, and it doesn't have to go that way, right? So they have some nice tables in there where maybe uh, they want the bully out of the, the monster party to be killed. So maybe the orcs stand back while you clobber the ogre because the ogre has been abusing them. I think that's a great uh, twist. Um, adding in terrain, they discuss that in the builder. 
a lot of us just, you know, assume the terrain doesn't fight back or the terrain <laughs> isn't trapped, right? And it, it's, it adds for sort of a boring fight. Uh, but these are some nice twists. You know, regarding the tables itself, I think the tables are great for somebody who's pretty new at D&D. You know, for those of us who played a little bit longer, I don't think we actually need anything like this. I mean, I could take a, an ancient red dragon if I wanted to and throw it against a party of eighth level characters. But what's to say that uh, ancient red dragon only has like a tenth of his hit points left? Maybe it's been injured. Right? <laughs> if it gets a breath weapon, it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, no. So, uh, you know, you, you could throw something harder at them and just uh, make sure that monster drops in like uh, two rounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, or I mean... Whatever, whatever your story needs, that's what I like. I like the story portion. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I love to see this added. I think you're, you're right. This, uh, this step five of adding complications, I feel like, is a thing yeah. that even I, as a, a, you know, a person who's DM for a long time, I forget sometimes and I just throw a monster in a square room and, I'm, and then when the fight's going on, I'm like, oh yeah, I, like I should have made, th- this isn't interesting at all. This is just a bunch of guys surrounding a purple worm beating it to death, you know? What's um, it called? uh so yeah yeah i i I totally totally yeah clearly yeah we could easily make these monsters a little more exciting than what they say on their pages yeah Mm -hmm. yeah uh to give a to give a a plug to another show i'm actually in the car listening to the tome show episode called making monsters sizzle Mm. um with jared von hinman dan dillon chris sims and and jeff greiner and they're talking all about this stuff Mm-hmm. And and they're saying exactly the same stuff. Give it a name, change some of its abilities to make it interesting, make sure that the environment fits the monster well so that it's exciting. So if you haven't listened well, to in that. In fact, based that. on all that stuff, what, what is your guys' opinions about characters making checks to know the history of, of the monsters? They want to know their armor class. They want to know any immunities they might have, etc. What do you guys use in your games? I have a tendency of telling people what the armor class is pretty early um, because I don't, I don't know that that, because A, it speeds it up a little bit. It's not that big a deal. Um, I'll, I probably won't do it right away. Like I'll, I'll, I'll do it after there's some flavorful reason for them to guess like, wow, this thing, you know, hitting this thing is really hard. But sometimes I might say like, you're staring at this, you know, this Strahd's animated armor and it's like hitting a mountain of metal. It's AC is 21. Right. And I'll write it out on a big board. So that way when they roll, they know right away if they hit or miss them. They don't have to do a bunch of selecting back and forth. It's, a, you know. Um, the other stuff, they, most likely I'll, I'll, I'll tell them as soon as they're able to discover it or if there's a good reason why their character would know. Yeah, I, I follow a similar kind of approach, I think. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, like if the character can make it or a player can make a case that their character would have been exposed to something out of their background, uh, or training, you know, like for example, if you're a cleric and you've got, you know, trained in religion and your particular deity, you know, has maybe relationship with undead, you know, maybe an enmity to undead, you might get um, some special knowledge that, a, say, a thief that grew up on the streets might not get. Same thing if you're a wizard, you might know something about the planes that. Uh, you know, that a fighter wouldn't get. So, so depending on, but again, it's largely up to the character, the player to make a case for why they, their character might know that. Um, and then once they do, then I'll give them basic 
uh, basic rundown. But there's other monsters which are going to be so weird that they're just not going to know. And I just will can't flat out say, you really have no idea what this is, but this is how it's hitting you. This is, you threw that fireball at it, and guess what? It doesn't seem to really be bother it that much, you know. Darn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do a, a very similar thing. What I normally do, right, is the same thing. If it's a weird monster that there wouldn't be a lot of information on or or you wouldn't come across even as an adventurer regularly, um, you, you probably don't know much about it. Uh, and if you do for things like immunities and stuff like that, it's either as they discover it or if the player can make some sort of case, I'll allow them to make a check and then I'll say like, okay, you know, you if you succeeded, how do you know that this monster is immune to fire? You know, and give them a chance to add to the story that way. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that's, right, that's normally good. it. Or if they're a ranger uh, and it's in their favorite enemy camp, uh, I usually let them know. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, and the other the other thing is, you know, the you know, I think, uh, you know, we reskin monsters a lot. I think, uh, and so when you're in a situation where you have a like a goblin or an orc or something, and I make a tougher, meaner goblin or orc, well, you know, they may not be able to tell that it isn't a run of the mill. So they think it's just a one hit thy creature or a two hit thy creature, and all of a sudden they find out that this thing is dishing out and taking a lot more damage than they thought. You know, so I do like to throw things in that are not standard. Um, you know, you know, same thing with alignments. I mean, not every monster of a given type is always going to be evil or always going to be good. Um, I like to keep things on their toes. You might have a situation where you have a a goblin that's been converted to the worship of Helm or Tear or something like that, and is uh, and is is. <laughs> I think back to the. Uh, in the old Neverwinter Nights games when you had Deacon, the kobold that was uh, a bard and ended up tagging around the party a lot. So uh, I do that a lot too. So, you know, I don't like doing things that are just automatically textbook monsters. Nice, yeah. And Mike, I think you are right. Uh, that podcast that Jeff did. Yeah, they talk all about this stuff. Yeah, they have a lot of really good. It's really, really good. So I encourage our listeners, if you haven't, to, to go listen to that one, Making Monsters Sizzle. Um, so can I can I ask a question to the group as well, just to make sure we, so I can get kind of a baseline? Of course. So how how do you guys build encounters? And in and, and particular, so A, like what's your process for building an encounter and then b how do you figure out how many monsters you need to throw up against your party all right i will always look at what am i actually doing like, like for instance uh one of my players in his background wants to be uh, someone who's hunting down lycanthropes so in the princes of the apocalypse i will build a side encounter uh, instead of using one of those that are in the book so I'm going to be using lycanthropes. I'm going to be using ones that are appropriate for their level. So it gives me some ideas on what I want to do. Um, and now I will start looking at, do I want to keep them as written or do I want to increase their damage output? Do I want to hit them with the nerf bat a little bit? Um, and that's where I will start. And then I will look at where is their layer? What is their location going to be? And how can I make that interesting with the traps um, or something that they can use, like let's say there's some braziers that they can knock over on the party to burn them, then I will start looking at that thing. And then I will also look at um, what 
are the ways they can defeat this encounter other than killing them down to the last hit point, which is really boring. You know, where would the um, enemies give up? Or maybe there will be some infighting among them. Um, Something like that as another alternative rather than swing their swords to the end. That's how I start and go. Dan, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Scott, I think I I agree kind of. I take a very similar approach, uh, you know, where, where I'm looking at the scenario. I mean, in my mind, you know, an encounter is just a part of a larger scenario, generally speaking. I mean, there's the occasional kind of random encounter that occurs when you're traveling from point A to point B, in which case I just, I usually just pick something, you know, kind of. Uh, open the open the monster manual and figure out what I get and if I like it I use it and if I don't I open the manual manual to another page and go from there so there's not much rhyme or reason to it but as far as you know a set encounter piece you know it's in the context of of a story that I'm trying to tell and so the monsters have to make sense um, and uh, you know as far as how many I, you know I, it it's going to be kind of a gut level feel more than anything else based on how many of the players I know are going to be there for that session. Um, I mean, I hate to say that that drives a lot of it, but if I know I'm only going to have three of the characters show up and are going to participate, I'm not going to give them the same uh, intensity of an encounter as when they're, when all six of them are there, all eight of them are there. So, But that's more of an intuition on my part than, than something that's based on absolute numbers. Um, yeah, I know on a lot of the Adventures League modules, that's exactly what they do. It's like, well, if you have a extra weak party, then take away these monsters or add more of these if it's an extra strong party. And it's kind of the same level of intuition. Awesome. awesome. That's why I love minions. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, One I hit mean... point. I love minions in fourth edition. <laughs> and I would say, you know, Mike, I'm the same exact way. I'd start with thinking about what monsters are appropriate for what the players are going up against and uh, and go from there, you know, um, thinking. Uh, uh, usually what I do is think about what monster is appropriate, open up Cobalt Fight Club and figure out how many of those I can put into the encounter uh, and then start thinking about, okay, so is this monster super smart? Uh, if they are, like, how would they defend themselves? Do they know this is coming? What sort of minions do they arm themselves with? All that kind of stuff. If they're dumb, um, you know, or, or, or more instinctual, what, what does it want then? You know, like, is it there to eat? Is it there looking for a mate? Is it cornered? And that's why, you know, um, so thinking about sort of those motivations Mm -hmm. and and building Mm -hmm. encounters from there. What about you? How do you build encounters, Mike? Um, yeah, I think, I think, well, so I, I run a, ro- a lot of published adventures, so I tend to kind of start with that. But then when I'm making my own encounters, I'll, I'll kind of start with what monster I'm interested in. Um, I'll usually, you know, have some kind of idea about how that whole thing is going to take place. Where is it going to take place? What, what environment things could, could come in that'll make it exciting. And it's usually a mix of monsters. I think we talked about this, right? It's usually not one kind of monster. You know, it's usually, a, maybe, you know, often a couple of different kinds of monsters. And, and I think when we look at the encounter building guidelines, figuring out, well, how does, how does that work with multiple monsters of different CRs uh, is a, a worthy question. And, and again, my secret formula, which I will, which I, I, I kid, I will share, um, helps me in my head say, okay, I think it's about two of these and three of these um, or whatever. And um, when I have that baseline, then I know like, well, I'll probably make it a little harder and add an extra one of these. Or ah, this one really ought to be a little easier, so I'll 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 you know I'll I'll trim it down to this. 
Um, and that gives me a good idea of, of how many, you know, of, of what the encounter is going to look like. Do you, do you want to hear my secret formula? Yes, tell us the secret formula. Um, so while we looked at, at what, what I looked at was 4th edition and 13th age, which have the sort of one-to-one -one system, right? Like a, a level one monster is equivalent to a level one character. If there are four level one characters, or you can have four level one monsters and it will be even. Uh, and that, that can still kind of work in 5th, but it's not one-to-one. -one. It's one-to-one-third. Uh, and that 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 accounts for the uh, number of monsters. So if you have uh, four level six characters, you can have four CR two monsters, and that's an even fight. If you have four level twelve characters, uh, you can have uh, four level four monsters, and that's an even fight. Like if you have four level twelve characters versus four ogres, that's about right. You know. <laughs> And then if it, when, you, when you think about, well, okay, but what if I want some bigger monsters or some smaller monsters, you can essentially double that or have it, and then you should have two for one or one for two in the other direction. So an example is if I want a CR8 fire, I don't know that a fire giant is CR8, so, so work with me here. But if you have a CR8 fire giant, so let's say you got four level 12 characters, and I want to do fire giants and ogres, right? I've decided fire giants and ogres are a good mix. I can say, I'm going to... I'm going to have one CR8 fire giant, which is the equivalent of two characters. And then if I got two characters left over, I can have one ogre for each of those characters. So two ogres and one fire giant is roughly equivalent to four level 12 characters. Right? And I can do that all in my head. I didn't, I didn't look at anything just now. And it all has to do with that rule, what I call the rule of one third. Mm -hmm. right? A monster that's one third the CR of the level of the character is equivalent to that character. And, and it works, so that math, actually, if you go, and I, I did this, if you actually chart that all out across the entire level range, it's, it's, it's within the range. I think there's one point when that counts as a deadly encounter, and I, I don't even know what level that is. Most of the time, that is, that is a hard, considered a hard encounter. And, and the balance works out right, and it means that you can get that sort of minion, normal, uh, elite, and solo idea of fourth, but with fifth. And if all you do is remember the rule of a third, um, you can immediately sort of look at a, a thing and say, you know, uh, uh, how many of these monsters should I have given the characters that I've got? And of course, you have to do some rounding. Like, you know, if you have a if you have a eleventh level character, and a you know, and it turns out the CR five is what you want, you kind of have to monkey around and go, okay, well, you know, CR five is higher than a third, so maybe I want to do one less than than that. You know, that's almost half. So I, I probably want to do maybe one fewer than the number of characters instead of equal to the number of characters. Does that make sense? Is that too weird and complicated? <laughs> now, no, actually, I'm, I'm just flipping through the, through the monster manual right now, eyeballing it. And uh, yeah, it, it works pretty well with my intuition. So cool. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I've used it now. And so what's nice is that when I'm sitting there with a piece of paper thinking about encounters, I could just I can I can very quickly whip up. You know, okay, if they're fighting, you know, if my group of level nine characters are going to fight some vampire spawn, which are CR, which are challenge four, how many vampire spawn should they fight? And the answer is, well, you know, if it's really a hard fight, they'd fight one for one. And maybe if I've got four characters, they'll fight three vampire spawn. And I can do that, you know, it's real fast to do that. And then I'll bet if you go look up the math and go do it in the DMG, it'll probably come out to about three. And, and the interesting thing about that is that it gives you a good rule of thumb when you have a party of characters that are different levels. Yes. Um, so, so 
Yeah, one of the one of the things when you go by like an average party level notion is you always end up having monsters that are underpowered for some of the characters and overpowered right. for the other ones because right. you're always targeting that middle level. This yep. gives you a, a sense where you can come up with okay, I need a couple hard ones, a couple user ones, and a couple in the middle, and yep. yeah, it's a good good uh, good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah, and 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 my my you know I think the idea of the rule of thumb is really important because this whole system kind of sucks anyway. Right. The whole, you know, you're not necessarily going to know how a fight is going to go. All the reasons we talked about. There's a million reasons why a fight can go one way or the other. Um, you know, Daniel was talking about how his character, his, his the, the characters in his game and the players are very experienced and, and really capable. That means that the, the chart is already off the board. Like it, it already isn't going to necessarily work right. Um, and so player experience is a huge one. How far they are in, into a, a day, a battle day, and you know, have they burnt a lot of their resources? That's one that um, uh, the Dungeon Bastard talks about. That's huge. Uh, yeah, and that's a, that's a huge one. Uh, what, what the balance is of characters. Like if, it's a, you know, if they don't have a cleric, that's a big difference. If they don't have a fighter who's hammering out a bunch of hit points that's, or hammering out a bunch of damage. There's all these variables, all these tweaks. And one of the big ones, because the number of rounds that happens in a game is so much shorter now. It's usually like my battles are lasting two to three rounds for most battles. And harder ones might go four or five. Mm -hmm. But that means initiative matters a lot. Yeah, and if the really characters does. get initiative, they're going to destroy the other side if the circumstances are right. Oh, so indeed. all of those are so have such wide variance that having this super articulate system to determine number of monsters per character or characters per monster is not really going to matter that much. So just having a loose number that says this is about right, you know, the one third rule, this is about right. And if you use it, you're going to be about right. And if you want to go wait, like I ran a battle against with a lich, a, whatever it is, challenge 21 lich with two shield guardians protecting him, mostly because I have a character who does 140 damage a turn. And if he didn't have shield guardians, he'd get killed in round one against a party of level nines, right? That is way off the chart. And he, he hurt them bad. He disintegrated one guy, power word killed another. You know, they had a really rough go at that lich, but they beat him. You know, and I knew they could beat him. I looked at their, I looked at what they have been doing over the course of the game, and I was like, you know, I bet they could take on a lich. And if they lose, I have a plan. <laughs> like, if they lose, then they're going to find themselves transformed into his agents. You know, and that'll be interesting. So, you know, but I, I made that decision after I knew already. Oh yeah, this is going to be way. This is like four times harder than it should be. You know, like I'm not even close. And and that's where like the whole system overall kind of falls apart. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I wish that, you know, particularly if we think about new players playing the game and stuff like that, I wish that there was an easier system that they put in place that said, hey, just just do this and you'll be close. Because I worry that players open or, you know, new DMs are open up the monster manual. They see challenge rating and they think it's equal to level and they'll throw like four ghouls at, at a, a party of level ones. <laughs> you know, and the ghouls. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is I did that in Pathfinder after playing 4E for a long time because I didn't realize that yeah. Pathfinder was that different. So yeah. I looked at challenge rating in Pathfinder and said, oh, I bet that's like level ones in 4E. And it wasn't. No. You know, yeah. the characters got their asses kicked. <laughs> and, that, so. and that's one of the things that, that actually I, d I don't like, you know, in terms of not having that parody. Because, you know, when I remember when I started playing oh so long ago, it was like level one monsters were on level one of the dungeon. And that's what the level one characters fought. And then level two monsters were on level two of the, you know, I mean, it's very old school, but it was a really easy way to gauge 
um, you know, w- you know, you weren't going to be throwing, you know, the the ogres at the first level characters because it would just rip their rip them to pieces. But uh, um, you know, f- when you're just starting out, I think you need that simplicity so you don't get yourself into trouble. Because the last thing you want to do is with new players is throw a bunch of stuff at them. Uh, and they really don't know what they're doing, so they're just rolling dice and having fun. But you know, you certainly don't want to give them a bad time. But at the same time, you don't want to make it so easy that that they just uh, you know roll through everything real fast too. So you got to find that balance. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we definitely want to know what our listeners out there think. So hit us up over at facebook.com slash the tome show and let us know or comment in the show notes for this episode over at the tome show.com. Let us know what you think about the encounter building rules. And you can also find a link to Mike Shea's secret one third method, which he has uh, <laughs> written about over there as well. Um, so, which is awesome. Uh, let's move on to, WizKids, shall we? Uh, so WizKids has unveiled that in late 2016, that's this year, uh, they are going to be selling unpainted D&D officially licensed miniatures. Uh, hero packs are going to contain low and high level sculpts of the same featured characters. Uh, designed with army building in mind, monster packs will contain one to three miniatures with different poses of a single monster. Item packs will contain scenery and items for detailing adventures. Um, so apparently these are going to be some highly detailed miniatures uh, that will not be painted. Uh, I am wondering what you guys think about this. Uh, me personally, uh, I do not paint miniatures. <laughs> uh, they always come out uh, worse than I thought. That being said, I'm not above using some unpainted miniatures at my table. Uh, so uh, what do you all think about uh, miniatures and unpainted miniatures that would probably be, you know, uh, uh, could possibly be cheaper and, and that sort of thing? Scott, what about you? Yeah, I like that idea, finally. Um, oh, Nice. You know, I I started doing my minis when I played the D&D skirmish game, you know, the miniatures game, and you bought them in random boxes, and there was a reason for that. But there's no reason to continue those sorts of sales of random boxes of whatever, because I've got so many things I don't need anymore. It's sad. But it'd be great for a company to give me a box of orcs, and there's like maybe five different types of orcs in there, or three different types. I don't need to see them. I just have to know that they're all different. Or I, and I like that idea of the hero that maybe he changes as you're leveling up. He looks more powerful or she looks more powerful, etc. I think that's great. And they actually do come painted. They come painted with a primer. <laughs> so at least you have a primered mini. That is true. That is true. And I, uh, you know, I agree. I love that idea of like, here's the same character and here's what they look like in their, you know, higher level, more heroic form um, is, is a really, really cool idea. Uh, what about you? What do you think about this, Dan? Well, you know, I, like you, James, I, I don't uh, spend a lot of time painting miniatures because the few times I've tried it looked like a very sick version of Popeye the Sailor or <laughs> something like that. <laughs> I, I, mean, I am familiar, I just, yeah. I just, I just do not have any skills or talent or the patience to do that. I, I do know people who do, and so I think there is certainly a a market of people for whom this will be a very attractive thing because they like to create the character they, they the way they see it in their mind's eye. And so, 
you know, it's not going to be for everybody, but there's there are people out there who are going to really like it. I, I hope they uh, hope it sells as well as they hope. Um, that said, I, I I agree, you know, with what Scott said in terms of being able to buy buy the monsters that you want uh, and the characters that you want, um, and not you know have it be the grab bag. You know, I have tons of miniatures that I don't use, a few that I do, and that's just the way it is. So being able to pick and choose is great. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and I'm with you. Whenever I paint them, they I just wish I had not painted them uh, because it ends up looking worse. Uh, Mike, what about you? I know you love minis, and I know that you are a pretty accomplished painter of miniatures. Uh, the funny thing is I wasn't, right? This is a relatively new part of the game for me, the hobby, and it was because of the Reaper uh, Kickstarters. Mm, and nice. I, I started with the first Reaper Kickstarter and got it. And my intent was, I'm not going to paint him, but I'll get a nice big pile of monsters and it'll be fun. And then I was like, well, what the hell? You know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I've never done it before. And I found that I actually enjoy it. Um, and I sucked, you know, and I still kind of suck. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not embarrassed by my own miniatures anymore. Like, I'll, I'll put them out there. But, like, I'm never painting an eye. I don't care, you know. <laughs> Painting an eyeball on a on a miniature that's the size of my thumb is is wh- horrifying to me. Um, <laughs> so I, you know, they they often are are sculpted so that you can paint their eyes, and then I just paint right over them with flesh tones, so they look really weird. Um, but uh, I, I I found yeah, so I found I actually enjoy painting. My wife enjoys painting miniatures. We went on vacation one time. We spent almost the entire vacation sitting on a beach painting miniatures. And, oh my um, gosh! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fun. That's nice. Uh, yeah, we didn't care. We had a good time. Um, I, I will. I will say for a fact that my wife would never do that with me on vacation. So yeah, kudos to you, know, Mike. Yeah, we didn't think about it, and I didn't. I wasn't sure that either of us would, but we actually started fighting over the table. You know, like who's, <laughs> which one of us is going to go paint because we're both working on stuff. And I learned a lot of tricks, particularly like monsters. My first one was like, well, I've got like twenty-four goblin miniatures. I'll just learn how to paint on these. And it's like you only need three colors, right? Like three colors in a wash, and you can make a pretty decent looking goblin. Um, and so the monsters are actually way easier to paint than the heroes because most people really don't care. Um, you know, it doesn't, they really don't need much. And, and the idea of ink washing or, uh, where you, you essentially, um, paint with a lighter color and then you wash it with a, like a watered down or an, an inky black or, or brown, and it gets into the cracks of the miniature and it gives this really great definition, super easy to do and really makes a mini look good. Uh, as long as you don't over ink it, like I've done for my first ones, I have some that just look muddy. Um, anyway, about this, so the, 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 I think it's fine. I think it's great and, you know, more, more better. Um, I remember Allison Rossi, I think on a previous podcast talked about how one of the things they wanted to see wizards do was put out inexpensive miniatures that people could get. And this seems like pretty close. It looks like they're going to be about a buck each. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that kind of what I saw? Yeah. I mean, when I'm, yeah. when their site, it sounds like, you know, depending on the pack. It's going to be, um, you know, about two ninety nine, three ninety nine a pack for for like three minis. Um, so yeah, that's a little, it's a little expensive. Because I think like the Reaper, if you do the Reaper Kickstarter, and granted, you have to front a whole lot of money, <laughs> but you get like three hundred minis. You know, you get these boxes and boxes. It takes so long to even open them up. <laughs> um, so I think it's fine. I, I don't really need any more minis. You know, <laughs> that I'm at the point. Like I've stopped painting, not because I don't need to paint anymore but i don't need anymore right you know like right. i've got boxes of hero minis and if you can't find one to match your hero you're not looking hard enough <laughs> well so i think it's great 
you know, it's fine. They look cool. I might, you know, if I see a sculpt that I really like, I might grab it. Well, and I wonder too, is it, is it one of those things where, you know, I know WizKids often sells cases in bulk to people. Um, you know, I always see uh, Taya Sabadea tweeting out like, I just opened yeah, my pack right. of, you know, so you might even be able to get closer to like a Reaper's Bones miniatures deal if you're buying them in bulk the same way you do from a Kickstarter. Yeah, maybe, right. The, the interesting thing is back in ye olden days with the painted minis that Wizards of the Coast came out with, it used to be like they were like, a, if you bought them on the secondary market, you could get them for like a quarter. Mm-hmm. right they they cost nothing so i was i mean this was when plastic and oil was cheap and and getting you know i don't know the deals we had with with china and everything were better and i i bought tons when they were like 25 cents and that's you know i've got seriously over a thousand minis and it's because <laughs> i got them when they were cheap yeah. and now like if it's a dollar for an unpainted one think about you know how much different the market has been in the last that's like 10 or 12 years. Sure. Yeah. I bought all of mine on eBay uh, yeah. for, for super duper cheap. Um, so in fact, that's still one of the places where I go because I can get exactly the mini I want. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I am excited and I think it's really cool. And uh, you know, I, I can't wait to see on social media, people showing off the heroes they've painted and stuff. So um, yeah. So it's very, a neat part of the hobby, you know. The painting. I know. I know. It sounds like we've. Does anybody else here paint except me? Yeah, I paint too. And actually, okay. uh, a good website for someone to go to if they're brand new, or at least go to uh, YouTube, Doctor Faust's Painting Clinic. Ooh, we'll put. He him does in the show great. Notes. Yeah, I met him at Gen Con last year, and he's got great yes. tutorials. Yes, yeah. this is how I learn. And you can copy what what he what most you know mostly you can yeah. copy what he does. Yeah, this is how I learned as well. I hit a lot of YouTube and, um, you know, and then you kind of had, I mean, a lot of it is you just got to experiment and play. Um, but I, but I found like, you know, it's, it's one of those weird archaic parts of the hobby. If we think back to what this hobby has been over the past 40 years, painting minis was one of it. And it's like, you know, certainly not everybody has to. And I'm not saying like, if you're, you're not a true D and D person, if you don't paint your mini, um, <laughs> but it's kind of fun little, you know, when, when, when we think about playing D and D I've, I've, I've expanded mostly because of the, um, uh, the new Monty Cook RPG that came out. What was it called? Black Sun. No, the one, the, the newest one with that great big box. Oh, I see. The the one that... Uh, with Invisible the Sun. Yeah. Yeah, Invisible Sun. So one of the things he talks about in that is like, playing the game is not just when you're sitting around the table doing stuff. Playing the game is when you're having a conversation on a walk. Or playing a game is when you're thinking about it at Starbucks. And, you know, that, that idea of the game of D&D is bigger than the table. And part of the D and part of the game of D and D can be sitting, listening to a Tome Show podcast while you're painting your hero, you know, and thinking about what that hero's like. And and while you're painting the backpack on that guy, you're thinking about how the travels that that guy's been on. That that's playing D and D. Yeah, can be yeah. one aspect of D and D when you can't get a, everybody around a table. That's right. You heard it from Mike Shea. Listening to the Tome Show is playing D and D. Absolutely <laughs> profound. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's true, and I think people do get a lot of uh, a lot out of uh, 
painting minis beyond just like, hey, I'm, you know, this is really cool to bring this to life. They're they're thinking about the story and they're getting more involved, which is always amazing. Um, and we want to know, again, what people out there think. Do you paint your minis? Are you excited about the new unpainted miniatures from WizKids? Hit us up over at thetomeshow.com or at facebook.com slash thetomeshow. Uh, I think that is going to do it for this episode, gentlemen. Uh, Dan Elwell, where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, I do occasionally tweet. It's at D-W-L-L. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I tweet on gaming topics even, so that's even a, a cool plus. Um, <laughs> I am also on Google Plus from time to time. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how you find people on Google Plus, but... If you look for Daniel Elwell, you can usually find me somewhere. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Search Dan Elwell on on Google Plus, or uh, go over to the show notes at thetomeshow.com, and we'll link it up there as well, so people can find you. Uh, what about you, Scott Dyer? Where can people find you? Uh, occasionally, I follow my Twitter. Mm-hmm. I I really am kind of anti-social media, not because um, uh, an anti personality person um i just don't have time right? <laughs> uh i have a family etc i have a job so uh, that takes up my time but occasionally they can get me on azarin the fake um nice yeah azarin the fake that's awesome uh and mike shea where can people find you uh slyflourish.com and twitter.com slash slyflourish i i love the tw- i still have a job and i um so i'm on twitter <laughs> that's right can uh, be done <laughs> i don't do anything else though <laughs> uh that is not true you are very prolific um so but it is great to have you all here thank you so much for joining me on the roundtable today gentlemen thank you for having me okay everybody and now it is time for my dm's guild pick of the episode my pick this week is adventure House of Horror from Patrick E. Pullen. This $2 adventure is a 15th level horror-themed adventure set in the city of Waterdeep. That's awesome. You don't see too many high-level adventures out there. So if you've just finished one of the adventure paths, maybe Tyranny of Dragons or Out of the Abyss, this could be for you just in time for Halloween. To add to the sense of danger, this adventure was designed as being possibly deadly. As the adventurers investigate the disappearance of a missing teenager in the city of Waterdeep, they stumble upon an old rundown mansion rumored to be haunted. Check it out, I warn you. In fact, I dare you to play this adventure. The difficulty is set to hard mode. That's right, great for a Halloween one-shot or for expanding your seasoned adventurer's campaign. So check out Adventure House of Horror. There is a direct link to it over in the show notes for this episode at thetomeshow.com. All right, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at James Intricasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Also, check out my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition D&D world I'm building over at worldbuilderblog.me. There's tons of free resources for your D&D 5e games over there. 
All right, everybody, thanks for listening. Special thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you are listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or the DMs Guild to help support this show. And hey, if you like the show, please rate the Tome Show on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.